Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. Raiders of the Lost Ark is structured as two movies in one. So is its film score. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode continues our musical adventures with Raiders of the Lost Ark, a film from 1981 by Paramount Pictures, produced by George Lucas, directed by Steven Spielberg, with a film score by John Williams. In our last episode, we talked about the main musical themes that Williams wrote for Raiders, and we talked about the film overall, how it was a love letter to adventure serials and movies of the past. Now, it's time to take a closer look at the musical moments in the film, starting from the top. South America, 1936. What's so interesting about the beginning of Raiders is that it doesn't present itself with a huge fanfare. As we stated in the last episode, it's different than, say, Superman or Star Wars in this way. Instead of a huge, bold theme that sets the entire tone of the movie, Raiders drops us off in the jungle. After the Paramount logo dissolves into a real mountain, the music is sparse, mysterious, using low strings and woodwinds, and various small percussion to score a dangerous adventure in the jungle we see a silhouetted man in a leather jacket and fedora. We never see his face. The only face we see as our adventurers trek through the jungle with a mule or two loaded with packs is that of actor Alfred Molina, with a very worried look on his face as he turns to camera during his hike. Indeed, we, the audience, relate to Molina's character named Satipo the most. We too seem lost and concerned. We're seeing this adventure through his eyes at first, and not through the eyes of the mysterious man in the hat. 
Our adventurers have an encounter with, as author Emilio Adesino puts it, an effigy of a threatening deity. We're treated to a nice stinger here from John Williams. We find out that this troop is being tracked by Hovitos, a native tribe, and that the adventurers are in great danger. The Hovitos are near. <clears throat> Poison is still fresh, three days. They're following us. If they knew we were here, they would have killed us already. This is all we know when one of the men decides to pull a gun on the man in the hat. The man in the hat hears the pistol cock, busts out a bullwhip, and thwarts the assassination attempt. Williams accompanies this with muted trumpets, followed by a menacing brass line. This and the previous sequence with the effigy of the deity are just the beginning of what we will see is William's overall style in Raiders. He follows the action very, very closely with the orchestra, using an old technique called Mickey Mousing, where the orchestra scores the action on screen very closely. A great example is composer Carl Stalling with the old Warner Brothers cartoons. He used to place little notes on every character's footsteps. That's a great example of Mickey Mousing, where the orchestra follows the action very closely. But back to Raiders. Here we are in the opening sequence of the movie. No big Raiders march, no heroic fanfare. In fact, when the man in the hat steps out of the shadows, the music is somewhat reminiscent of a kind of music that the Nazis get later in the film. Is this the bad guy? Here, we finally get a good look at the man in the hat for the first time, actor Harrison Ford. Maybe as an audience member we know him as Han Solo, but we certainly don't know Indiana Jones yet. And the filmmakers, Spielberg, Lucas, and Williams, they're not letting on if he's our hero yet. For all we know, this fedora-wearing, unshaven man of the shadows that's going to get everyone killed could just be the bad guy. All we know is that he is clearly some kind of badass with a bullwhip. And he certainly looks cool to me. Before I move on with what happens next, let's just ask ourselves, what's going on here with this movie? This isn't the Indiana Jones that we know and love today. What we're seeing here is a very intentional cold open. We've been dropped right in the middle of a story, not our main story about the Ark, but a different story without warning. And musically, this is exactly how John Williams is treating it. As if we've all missed the top of this whole episode in South America, and we're just joining as it's starting to get good. This is a quote that I found in Emilio Audesino's great book, John Williams' Film Music, but I believe it originally comes from an Empire Magazine article called Indiana Jones and the Ultimate Tribute. Anyway, Lucas says, quote, 
The idea was that instead of starting off the film slow, we would start off fast. The whole thing in serials, referring to the old serials of the past, is that they always recapped what happened before. Previously on Indiana Jones, our adventurer and his traveling troop land in South America, trying desperately to evade the Hobitos in order to find the idol. Anyway, Lucas goes on to say, I didn't want to make it that much of a serial by recapping it. So I said, the fun part is if we take the last episode or the last film and start at the climax of that film, you take that, the best part of a movie you haven't seen, then stop. Then you start a new movie 15 to 20 minutes in. It was kind of an outrageous idea at the time, end quote. So let's break down that quote. We are getting dropped into an adventure serial in the middle, the start of that episode's climax. In this way, the whole South America sequence is intentionally designed as a movie within a movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark is really two movies in one. And as we're going to see, it plays out as an exercise of not only creating an updated take on the classic adventure genre, but how our filmmakers plan to give that genre a little bit of a twist. Now, back to the jungle. We arrive at the treasure cave. The music here is very sparse, with thinning textures and low brass, but we're treated to a creepy musical moment when Satipo mutters, Senor, to our man in the hat. As it cuts to Harrison Ford, Williams hits us with a loud bow slap from the giant contrabasses, right when Williams thinks that we're going to see it. Several huge tarantulas crawling on Ford's back. Bam! This is followed by violins playing in pizzicato, which means that they're basically plucking the strings of their violins with their fingers rather than using a bow. And as the whole violin section plays it, it practically imitates the many spider legs that are crawling on screen. This is our first example of Williams using every expressive texture available to him with an orchestra, acting more like an orchestral storyteller or sound designer than a composer of music. This characteristic, and the Mickey Mousing characteristic that we mentioned previously, are very important to this score. And this expressive textural technique continues as our man in the hat gestures back to Satipo that he too has spiders on his back, only way, way more than Indy had, more than we saw before. Williams employs the violin section again here as they perform a large upward glissando of dissonant notes, pointedly scoring not only the repulsion of Satipo, but the shiver down our spines in the audience as we see all of these spiders on screen. Very, very effective. The Mickey Mousing continues as the man in the hat springs a light-based booby trap. Stop. Stay out of the light. Revealing the body of the less than successful adventurer who came into this cave before them. Again, Williams is playing up Satipo's horror as well as our own. Next, we hear the beginning of an action motif for the man in the hat, but very briefly, only for a moment, as he uses his bullwhip to effortlessly swing over a chasm. (laughs) 
But then, when Satipo tries it, he falls short. And Williams uses the orchestra and the woodwinds to Mickey Mouse this attempt. This continues as the man in the hat and Satipo approach the room that contains the idol. Satipo's like, we gotta hurry, there's nothing to fear in here. He's wrong, of course. Then, as the man in the hat approaches the idol, stepping carefully, we start to hear an orchestral arpeggio. By the way, arpeggio really is just a fancy musical term for notes moving up and down in a sequence. Stay here. If you insist, senor. This is wild to me because it's almost like this music is modernist, mid-20th century concert music. A far, far cry from that feel-good Raiders march or the super lyrical love theme for Marion. The music here is really out there. I mean, if we were to hear it in isolation, we would find it, you know, unsettling and odd. But against picture, it works beautifully. Anyway, the music here builds and builds as Spielberg, Ford, and Williams make a really big deal out of this moment. Just ratcheting up the tension. All the while, Satipo is on the edge of his seat, and in this way, we, the audience, are still Satipo. We're not the seemingly indestructible, all-wise, all-knowing, super-clever and adventurous and morally ambiguous man in the hat at this point. But all of that is about to change. In spite of all of his scheming, his clever plan to replace the idol with a bag of sand of identical weight in order to avoid springing the trap, the man in the hat miscalculated. Whoops. This is our first ultra-relatable moment with the man in the hat. Ah, he's human after all. He makes mistakes. And now all musical heck breaks loose. Now we're rooting for the man in the hat. The cave starts to crumble, and we know the rest. Satipo betrays him. A giant stone ball chases him out of the cave. And let me tell you something. John Williams and the London Symphony Orchestra, particularly the brass section, awaken like sleeping giants. Let's listen to the following action cue. Another Mickey Mouse moment as we see Satipo's fate on the spikes. Ugh. Now, listen to these trumpets. Those repeated notes. Amazing. Not just the high brass, but the low brass as well, playing those 16th notes in rapid fire, almost machine gun succession. 
This is the LSO proving that they have the greatest brass section in the world. That lightning fast tonguing technique, which is how they play those same staccato notes in a sequence. Very difficult and expertly played with a ton of confidence. And finally, after barely escaping the treasure cave, our hero makes it out alive. But unlike the unstoppable, almost superhuman adventurers of the past, those old serials like Don Winslow of the Navy, our new acquaintance, who we learned now is named Indiana Jones, has failed his quest. Now we're seeing the update to this serial genre, the Spielberg-Lucas twist. The idol is unceremoniously taken from him by his arch-nemesis, the French archaeologist, Belloc. Notice that the music has completely stopped. The complete lack of music, for the first time in the film, is almost like we've awakened from an adventurous dream into the cold, hard reality of failure. Dr. Jones. Again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. And you thought I'd given up. Also, our illusion about the man with the hat as a superhero, or super villain, super anything, has been broken. He's been outsmarted. And as Belloc takes the idol from Jones and shows it to the Hovitos, the local tribe, Jones makes a run for it. Belloc's laughter echoes through the woods as Jones flees, and now we finally have a take on who's the bad guy. Aha! It's Belloc! That must make Jones, the mysterious man in the hat, our hero. The chase music emphasizes this. It's bouncy with pizzicato strings and mischievous high-pitched clarinets. It's not heroic, it's, it's actually, dare I say it, kind of funny. Remember that arpeggio from the cave, right before Jones tries to grab the idol? Well, we get it again, only over a shot of Jones running as fast as he can, scared out of his mind, towards his escape vehicle. A seaplane sitting idly in a river. The only problem is that his pilot isn't at the ready, he's fishing. He doesn't even want to stop fishing as Jones screams at him to start the plane. All of this humor is underpinned by the music. Finally, the plane starts and Indy grabs a vine and tries to swing, a la Tarzan, another old-fashioned serial, toward the plane. As he does, we hear, for the very first time, the beginnings of the Raiders' March. Yay! Only it goes a little sour. As Jones swings and falls way short of the plane, landing in the river with an unceremonious splash. Not exactly a swashbuckling getaway, but get away, Jones does. And as the plane leaves, we're treated to a rousing, fully orchestrated version of Indiana Jones's theme, The Raiders' March. Of course, the filmmakers give us a parting shot on Jones's lack of heroism at moments. In his seat on the plane, Jones sees a snake. Jones is soaking wet, and his fedora is now wet and flapped back like an old-timey western town drunk. 
We hear the second Raiders melody under this, as Jones's snake phobia is set up to pay off later. There's a big snake in the plane, Jacques! Oh, that's just my pet Finally, at the end of our adventure, our movie within a movie, we get the full crescendo of the Raiders theme in all of its glory. With the use of bells and a quick orchestral texture change, we transition to an establishing shot of a university. Now, again, the reason we get the Raiders theme fully realized here is because this is who we're going to get with Indiana Jones. A less than perfect, stumbling, yet totally brave and likable hero. No need for the theme to evolve over time. This is who Indy is. This is the end of his last adventure, and now we're about to start the next episode all about the Lost Ark. One last point on this whole starting in the middle thing, what they call in medio res, cold open of Raiders of the Lost Ark. This South American opening, followed by an entire adventure about the Ark, means that Raiders of the Lost Ark is structured as an opening adventure followed by a bigger adventure. Okay, well, one is considerably bigger and much more dangerous than the other. The Ark is most of the movie, obviously. So it occurred to me that the melody of the Raiders' March actually follows this structure to a T. The opening melody, the setback, losing the idol, but pushing to escape, and then flying away successfully. But we get the opening melody again. We get the second adventure in the story, even within the melody. Now we're going to look for the arc. And then the setback, only an octave higher, set against an almost supernatural chord, the flat two, a heightened, dangerous adventure, and then finally making it home safely. By presenting the hero twice in the melody, the Raiders March, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, gives us a musical sense, even in just this first movie, that we are witnessing the serial adventures of Indiana Jones. And now for a brief intermission. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. We return now to the soundtrack show. I need to take a moment to talk about the sound design of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Skywalker Sound, although back then it was called Sprocket Systems. Sprocket Systems legend Ben Burt, who created all of the incredible sounds in Star Wars, also created the soundscapes for Indiana Jones. The iconic, bigger-than-life sounds are a huge part of what makes the soundtracks to these films so successful. Soundtrack in the literal sense, the optical audio track that is synchronized with the film print, containing music, dialogue, and sound effects. Here is Spielberg discussing the impact that Ben Burtt has on Raiders. 
I got a chance to work at the beginning of Skywalker Sound with the father of Skywalker Sound, Ben Burt. And uh, I remember the first time I was really flipped and so impressed by something Ben did with Raiders. The Jovitos are here. Poison is still fresh, three days. All of a sudden, there is a strange, otherworldly creature, almost a Star Wars creature. I don't know where he got it. And it made that entire jungle scene so friggin' alien. And when I first heard that, I said, this is gonna be a great adventure. It's gonna be a great adventure in sound. I had a conversation, a long conversation with Steve uh, over the phone about the nature of the whole film. You'll come back here for the chair. I think I said to him something about the fact, well, does the hero's hat stay on all the time? And he said, yes, it does. And then I understood what kind of movie we were making. You know, if the hat never comes off, even in a fist fight, then we're, we're in that realm of the uh, classic uh, Saturday afternoon adventure movie. Here's a clip of Ben Burt discussing the sounds of Indy's bullwhip and his pistol. We knew that Indy had a whip. And of course, we could have pulled the whip sounds from a library, since obviously there's been whips recorded in the past. But no, we wanted to do it ourselves. Actually, what happened was that Gary Summers, who was recording sound effects with me, spent the day on the set. And uh, the result of that was that Harrison had some time and came over to our editing room. And Gary and Harrison stood out back in the parking lot. And Harrison tried to show Gary how to crack the whip. It was a little too noisy to record it. So later, I took Gary Summers out to quiet locations. And uh, Gary did a lot of cracking of the whip. And we did it in different environments, in the trees, uh, out in the middle of the field. And we built up a library of whip cracks, uh, which was the basis for Indy's sound. A gunshot can just be a pop or a click, depending on where you record it, because it's just a sudden, very brief, uh, loud noise, like a hand clap. The actual Indiana Jones gunshot was a 3030 Winchester rifle that was recorded. We did a lot of different gunshots. We probably recorded, you know, a few hundred different guns in different locations. The giant boulder was a tricky sound to invent because it had to have weight, but it also had to accelerate and move very fast, and finding something that big and getting it to move fast was hard. We were coming back from the location, and we were on a steep hill, and we were in this little Honda Civic station wagon on a gravel road on this mountain, and we were just coasting down the hill without the motor running, and we realized that the car sounded really interesting. Well, we might have the sound here. So I hung out the back and put a microphone near the back tire of the station wagon. And we just coasted down this road. And as the car accelerated, it gave a sense of gathering speed. And it, uh, that ended up being really the basis for the giant boulder. His sounds, how they tell a story, and how they blend with the orchestra will be discussed as we move forward. So now, we've arrived at Indy's day job, a professor of archaeology at Marshall College. No music here in this sequence. Indy's life as a professor isn't nearly as exciting as that of an adventurer or treasure hunter. His class is interrupted when Marcus Brody tells him that the feds want to speak with him. So we learn about the Nazis digging up the lost city of Tanis, looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant. As the men talk about the Ark, listen to what Ben Burt does 
with sound. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you mean, mean Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, well, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden whoosh is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishak. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber? However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year wiped clean by the wrath of God. Now, while there's no music here, do you hear those gusts of wind outside? Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishak. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis. Now, for our purposes, I need to explain here that when film sound is recorded, it's recorded as cleanly as possible. Ambient noise or any noise is added in by sound editors later. This is for practical reasons. For example, you have to translate the movie into a bunch of different languages, so anything you want in the audio track is done separately. So dialogue is captured very cleanly. In other words, this is not just random wind that happened on the set of this movie. This was added intentionally as an artistic choice. The wind gust, like the music cue that we're about to get, is a storytelling device, and we're going to hear it throughout the film. The Ark is supernatural, very powerful, a relic of God, and the mention of it, along with this eerie gust of wind, is unsettling and foreshadows what's yet to come. As Indy shows a picture of the Ark in an old textbook with rays, the power of God, coming out of the Ark, the Ark's theme is heard for the first time. We hear woodwinds and distant female voices. Now, what I love about the use of female voices for the Ark is that it sonically foreshadows the beautiful spirits that eventually transform into these frightening, terrifying spirits. It personifies those female spirits that we see coming out of the Ark at the end of the film. Now, as we move to Indy's house, we hear a somber version of the Raiders' March further cementing to us that this is Indy's theme. As Marcus and Indy talk, Indy brings up Marion Ravenwood, and we hear, for the first time, Marion's theme. But Marcus changes the subject back to the Ark, and her theme is overtaken by the Ark's theme. An interesting micro-commentary on Indy's conflicting priorities. Will she still be with him? Possibly. Marion's the least of your worries right now, believe me, Indy. What do you mean? Well, I mean that for nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the lost ark. 
not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. Notice that the arc theme here is played with muted trumpets. It's interesting, but after a while you can really hear when Williams is foreshadowing or holding back when he puts mutes on brass instruments. For those that don't know what I'm talking about, a muted brass sound is achieved by having the brass players physically place objects in the bell of their horns, making the sound muted, quieter, and certainly less powerful. Sometimes it's done for a comedic effect, like a wah-wah mute. Here, perhaps the muted brass represents that sleeping power of the undiscovered arc. Here's a quote from author Emilio Audesino, quote, The use of the mute in the trumpets aptly represents the latent power of the arc. In the scene in which the arc is finally found, its leitmotif will be played without any mute. From that moment on, the menace will be a real one and the power of the arc liable to be unleashed at any moment, end quote. Finally, our hero departs to Nepal via another plane. We hear Indy's theme in a minor setting. When we see a villain spying on Indy, we hear villainous, mustache-twirling bad guy chords. Finally, we're treated to our first map sequence. Now, this kind of map sequence is straight out of a film like Casablanca, you know, where you see the plane flying over a map in a red line and hitting these different dots. Well, as it's traveling this line on the map, the music changes textures to show us where we're going via exotic instruments, etc. Here's a clip from Casablanca. With the coming of the Second World War, many eyes in imprisoned Europe turned hopefully or desperately toward the freedom of the Americas. Lisbon became the great embarkation point, but not everybody could get to Lisbon directly, and so a tortuous roundabout refugee trail sprang up. Paris to Marseille. Across the Mediterranean to Oran. Then by train or auto or foot across the rim of Africa to Casablanca in French Morocco. Here the fortunate ones through money or influence or luck might obtain exit visas and scurry to Lisbon and from Lisbon to the New World. But the others wait in Casablanca and wait and wait and wait. Also part of the fun of this thing has been to, uh, to, to describe the locations of where the films were, were taking place. And, and I always loved the, I always loved the, um, the maps that Stephen had where, where the plane flew from Bangkok over here to this place, next place. And we would do, as you would have done in the 1930s at Warner Brothers, the music flies over Cairo and becomes Egyptian and then flies over someplace else and changes into the national character of wherever we are in the way that you would have done a travelogue or a kind of uh, 
documentary on, on, on uh, these various areas. Again, it was it, it's a kind of fun that you could, you wouldn't do that seriously in a film really uh, anymore, but I think it was part of Stephen's idea to adopt this comic book with a capital C and B, joyous way of tapping into the nostalgia of the way these things used to be done cinematically. The same is true with Raiders. We start with another statement of Indy's theme, an adventurous minor setting. But as we approach Nepal, we hear the sound of an exotic gong, and the string section plays in almost cliched parallel fourths and fifths, a classic Hollywood shorthand for arriving in a distant eastern land. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Finally in Nepal, we, the audience, get to the Raven Bar before Indy does. She wins a drinking contest and collects money, all with no music, no Marian theme. When Indy arrives, also no music. Their meeting is emotionally charged, but unceremonious, without any musical accompaniment. Only when Indy leaves and Marion is alone do we get our first music piece with Marion. And it's not the love theme, but almost a theme for the medallion as she reveals her possession of it, deciding whether or not to part with it. But this doesn't last long as trouble shows up at her door. Here we find another example of Lucas and Spielberg's homage to classic screen villains as we are introduced to a character in all black with glasses named Tote. Tot, by the way, is literally the German word for death. And Williams, of course, doesn't disappoint, giving us those same villainous chords, telling us without a doubt that this is the baddest of bad guys that we've met so far. Actor Ronald Lacey is almost doing his best Peter Lorre impression from the film noir classic The Maltese Falcon and others. See, Mr. Speed, I'm trying to recover ornament that, uh, shall we say, has been mislaid. Uh-huh. I thought and hoped you could assist me. The ornament uh, is a statuette, black figure of a bird. I am prepared to pay on behalf of the figure's rightful owner the sum of $5,000 for its recovery. I am prepared to promise that... Uh, what is the phrase? No questions will be asked. Good evening, Fräulein. The bar is closed. We are... We are... Not thirsty. What do you want? The same thing your friend Dr. Jones wanted. Surely he told you there would be other interested parties. It must have slipped his mind. The man is nefarious. I hope for your sake he has not yet acquired it. Why, are you willing to offer more? Oh, almost certainly. Here, Williams employs even more Mickey Mousing, as Tote asks Marion about the medallion. Marion responds by literally blowing smoke in his face via her cigarette. 
Author Emilio Audacino points out that this is a direct homage to John Ford's 1935 movie, The Informer. A man blows cigarette smoke in the face of a character named Katie. Max Steiner, who provided the score, Mickey Moused it like this. Of course, in Raiders, it's Marion blowing smoke at Tote. Here is Williams and Spielberg's version in Raiders. Do you still have it? No. But I know where it is. The music grows ominous as Tote responds by threatening with a red-hot poker, which gets removed by Jones's bullwhip. And now, for the rest of the sequence, no music. It's all left to Ben Burt to tell the story and tell it he does. Finally, as the bar burns down, Indy and Marion are left standing in a snowstorm, still in possession of the medallion, and they begin their adventure together as partners. The scene ends with a musical cue that reprises the map travel sequence from the U.S. to Nepal, only now, Indy's theme is joined by the second appearance of Marion's theme. The two are on an adventure together. And as they make their way to Cairo, Egypt, the music modulates into a more exotic, chromatic scale, almost like a double harmonic minor, starting cleverly on the third of her melody, which then becomes the root for this new scale. If we're here... This note right here becomes the new key center for this. I can't stress enough the excellent work that author Emilio Adesino has done in his book, which, by the way, is the only book solely dedicated to John Williams, his life, and his music that's ever been published, called John Williams Film Music. Check it out if you get a chance. It's available on Amazon. But his work is largely featured in these episodes, and it really is incredible. Any analysis that I've done on my own would not have been possible without his totally thorough and amazing full analysis in that book. On our next episode, our adventures in Cairo will begin. As always, I love hearing your feedback. For questions or comments, you can email me at soundtrackshowpodcast at gmail.com. Or please follow us on social media, on Facebook or Instagram at SoundtrackShowHSW, or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Thank you. Thank you.